I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hi, this is Newt. Due to the virus, I'm recording from home. So you may notice a difference in audio quality. On this episode of Newt's World, Dr. Michael Crow is a disruptor and innovative leader in the field of education. He became the 16th president of Arizona State University in 2002 and has spearheaded ASU's rapid and groundbreaking transformative evolution into one of the world's best public metropolitan research universities. Through Dr. Crow's leadership and vision, Arizona State University has been named the number one most innovative school in the nation by U.S. News & World Report for four years. ASU strives to make education accessible and affordable to any qualified student. They currently enroll 165,000 learners on campus and online. In fact, Forbes Magazine named Dr. Crow number 44 out of the world's 50 greatest leaders in 2019 and said, quote, Crow has spent 17 years reinventing Party School ASU as a higher ed innovator, adding satellite campuses, online degrees, and partnerships to educate Starbucks employees and Uber drivers. Enrollment at 98,000 is nearly twice that of 2002, and the student body is far more economically and racially diverse. Expansion has not hurt learning. 52% of students graduate in four years, up from 28% in 2002. He is the author of two books, including his latest, The Fifth Wave, the evolution of American higher education. I'm pleased to welcome my guest, Dr. Michael Crow, president of Arizona State University. 
Dr. Crow, as we begin our discussion, would you start with what's not working in higher education right now? And what are the biggest issues we are facing? First, Newt, thanks for the chance to get together and talk. I really appreciate having the opportunity to speak with you. The issue that's out there now is that we have become obsessed with basically exclusion and scarcity as the drivers. The best schools are those that have the most applications and let in the fewest number of people. That creates a tiering in the higher education system where everybody's striving to become more and more exclusive, that their evolutionary pattern is exclusion. That then creates a dynamic energy in all of the public colleges, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, where they are unable or unwilling to innovate and they become trapped in a locked-in bureaucratic model. And the locked-in bureaucratic model doesn't allow them to adjust and adapt. So then we're beginning to see graduation rates go down. We're seeing costs accelerating somewhat out of control. The system then is cracking of the hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars that have been spent on Pell Grants since 1980 in a generous moment of American culture where we're helping kids to be able to go to college who can't necessarily afford it, more than half of those students never graduate. They have no degree or diploma or certificate of any type. And it's a terrible, terrible outcome. And so the functional constraints within higher education are a system built on excellence through exclusion and then a lack of innovation in the rest of the system, because if the system believes that exclusion is the path to excellence, then there's no way to innovate to do that. So the system has become broken down with an inability to fulfill its public mission, overly bureaucratized, driven in an agency type model as opposed to an enterprise type model. Those are the basic kinds of things that I think that are going on. Can you talk about the extraordinary debt that college graduates are facing and how do we change it? Right now, the U.S. government allows people to take loans under the name of student loans, but they don't equate it or drive institutions and students to success from those investments. So you can take a loan for a car as a student loan, but there's no correlation with your completion at the university. I'm deeply of the view that investments by the federal government, either in the forms of grants or loans, should be tied to the universities or colleges and both the student and the college should be responsible for outcomes. And so we need more outcome-oriented investment. I'm gonna give you this investment, but I'm not just giving you this investment and then you get to do whatever you want. You have to make progress. You have to pursue your degree. And so right now what we have is runaway debt and it's highly problematic and we need a range of improvements. Did you become president of ASU knowing that you were gonna take on and fundamentally transform the education system? The answer is yes. I left my role as deputy provost and a faculty member at Columbia University because I felt that the system, the higher education system and much of the education system in the U.S. was failing. And it was failing because of a lack of willingness to reconceptualize the design, to return to the roots of our egalitarian society and then build institutions that could operate that way. So the answer is yes. I came here hoping to be able to do some of the things that we've been able to do. I'm always fascinated by visionaries who are successful at actually pulling it off. What were your opening steps back when you first got there? How did you get people to decide that they wanted to go on your journey? What I really focused on was a belief that the faculty themselves and the staff of the university and the people supporting the university wanted it to be successful at social scale. That is that the initial conceptualization of the institution 
was to be a powerful driver for the success of our democracy, but that they'd sort of lost their way. And so the initial approach was to come in and to try to inspire the culture with a well-defined purpose. And so we outlined a purpose of the institution that ultimately evolved to be our charter. So what I really went after was culture change, modernization of the culture, empowerment of the culture. And that's not very easy to do, but that's where I started. Could you describe how you imagined the different audiences that you had to carry with you in order for this to work? I thought I needed to really say to the political leadership of the state and to the other leaders of the state, let us be entrepreneurial. Let us stop being a government agency. And that was relatively easy to do here in Arizona because people listen to that kind of logic. And I got a lot of willingness to say, yeah, why don't you give that a shot? Just don't screw up. A second group was the faculty itself, as I suggested, which I felt had to be empowered. We've disempowered all of our faculties by allowing them to become simple bureaucracies that endlessly fight within systems of resource scarcity that they contrived, and it's not necessary. And so that's a second group. A third group was to convince the broader community of potential learners that the institution was going to be able to be adaptable to differences different financial circumstances, different learning circumstances, different interests. And that meant detangling the rigidity of the design of the institution to that group. And then we had to rethink our relationship. You know, we've increased our fundraising by a factor of 15, 15 fold. So we had to get people to believe in the institution and to invest in the institution for its new purpose, not just the edification of self-aggrandizement by the naming of things, but the actual investment in the institution itself. And so all of those groups had to be approached in a unique and different way. One of the more complicated groups, of course, is other university leadership around the country, some of whom cheered heartily for us to be successful and others who cheered heartily for us not to be successful in the sense of the fact that you know, our model is pretty disruptive to the core set of assumptions that are out there. So it's a complex set of groups that one's working with to make something happen. I ask this as a former assistant professor at a relatively small state college. If I'd been a faculty member when you arrived, how would my life have been different over the last 17 years? Well, you would have found, I think, more opportunity to work in an environment where there's fewer barriers. You could have connected with more people easily. You could have been easily appointed to different schools. You would have been a part of schools, not in every case, but in many cases, where you could set your own intellectual agenda. And that is your own intellectual design, freed from just replicating things that existed in other places. We would have delivered to you unbelievable technology to allow you to figure out how to project your own intellectual identity, which thousands of our faculty members have been able to do. And so I hope that if you'd been here as a faculty member growing up here academically, that you would have felt empowered to have larger voice, larger intellectual flexibility larger impact and that those things would have motivated you. That's what I hope would have happened to you here as a faculty member. I was the coordinator of environmental studies in the very early days. This was early 1970s when Earth Day was big. And as such, I floated on top of the various departments. So I, in effect, had faculty loaned to me, but I didn't own any turf. How did the departments react to this kind of flexibility? Initially, I think there was a great amount of skepticism coming from maybe a quarter of the faculty and some of the departments. Maybe another quarter of the faculty were you know, like, who really cares? 
they were just going to go about and do their thing. And maybe half the faculty and maybe half the units were interested in the possibility of new trajectories. And so your experience at environmental studies is sort of an example. So imagine that we had environmental studies type things, but we had 50 of those or 100 of those going on in different areas. And we allowed that to happen. And so what we didn't do was we didn't try to bring every single person along. We brought along people like yourself who were interested in doing some of these new things. And then we empowered them. And then we just let that start taking off on its own. So we created a catalytic, innovative environment where innovation became a perpetual thing rather than an occasional thing. And that is true in the intellectual design of the institution also, not just in its structural design or its administrative design. As I've read your work and talked with you, this has been a continuously evolving model. And what you might have had in mind in 2002 or three is not necessarily what you have in mind in 2020, because your own experience and the world have both changed. What would you say are the biggest changes in your understanding of how to lead an institution like this and where an institution like this has to go? Well, I think that the lessons that I've learned in this time frame, one, is that this is extremely hard work because the scale of disciplines, the scale of the professoriate around the world is so massive. I think I underestimated the extent to which higher education in the United States is valued because of scarcity. The scarcer the seat to enter the freshman class, then in theory, the better the university. Those are powerful forces. What we've had to do is basically say that we're not going to follow those traditional trajectories, which are kind of like sideshow evolutionary environments as opposed to mainstream evolutionary environments. And I think what I've learned along the way is that this is an evolutionary process where what we're trying to do is to empower the institution to be able to evolve. And I think the lesson that I've learned is that that's really, really difficult particularly when almost all of the actors are coming in from institutions that are acculturated differently. And so one of the biggest challenges has been trying to figure out how to balance how we exist in the broader set of higher education institutions while building this unique institution. That's required me to be more patient than I might normally be and more flexible than I might think we need to be. You had a remarkably open admission policy for a school which is becoming an elite research institution. You're taking a lot of students who would not normally make it to those so-called elite universities, and you are transforming their lives in an ASU kind of unique model, both online and in person. Is that a reasonable analysis? Yes, completely reasonable, and it is, in fact, at the core of what we're trying to do. The notion that a research university can be populated only by the A-plus students from high school, I think is a socially delimiting design. Who would have thought that your life's fate would be determined because you were a screw-off in the 11th grade and ended up with a B average coming out of high school? What we've decided to do is to go back and say, what is the admission requirement that allows you to be qualified to attend the university? And so we went back and looked at the admission requirements of the University of California from 1950 which was then uh, no tuition and required a B average to be admitted. And you had to take 15 preparatory courses and get at least a B. So those are our admission requirements. Those are not the admission requirements for most research universities, but they are for us. And what we found is that the environment that we produced from that is fantastic. What we've also found is unbelievable achievement by not only our incoming A students, but our B students. And then we have other pathways to come into the university 
transferring from community colleges. And then we have another thing called our College Pathways Program, where you earn your way into the university by taking and completing college-level courses successfully. You represent a state which has a very complex demographic pattern between Native Americans, Hispanic Americans, African Americans, Asian Americans, and white Americans. Was that there from the beginning, or did you gradually evolve into a much more open and integrative approach? It typically wasn't there to the extent that it needed to be. We were not representative of ethnic diversity within the state's population at the university in terms of our students. But the way we approached that was we said that we needed to be representative of the totality of the socioeconomic diversity. It took us 10 years to do that. And once we did that, once our student body represented families of all income levels, where we broke down financial barriers, eliminated financial barriers, sought students out, found pathways to the universities programs and so forth. Once we did that, our ethnic diversity became more diverse than the population itself. The institution is more diverse today, both ethnically and socioeconomically, than it's ever been at any point in its history. And it is as representative as the entire population. And it's never been anywhere near that in its past. And even though you were making it that accessible, you still rose in terms of quality of research. You were becoming a major world-level research university while you're at the same time this massive general population education center. This is what everybody says is impossible. The model that we were attempting to demonstrate that I think we have demonstrated is that you can be highly accessible and highly excellent. If one measurement of excellence is research performance, you can do those two things in the same institution and then you can add a third dimension, which is the impact of the institution. So our Research funding has gone from $100 million a year to almost $700 million a year without a medical school. That's more non-medical research than Stanford or USC and more non-medical research than Harvard or Columbia and more total research than Carnegie Mellon or Caltech or any of these schools. So we built one of those inside the university and it demonstrates that the faculty and the environment can manage those two things at the same time. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. 
So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. How were you able to fund that much financial assistance? One, once we found the value of technology, and once we discovered that technology could help us to improve our outcomes and lower our costs, we became much more efficient. So we've done a good job, I think, of holding our costs down. I think the second thing that we've been able to operate from is scale. So scale has given us the resources to be able to move forward, and those things have worked. And then as we've moved into our online programs, those programs are both very uh, effective and very efficient. And so that, you know, the university is able to operate financially in this new model. So those things coming together helped us to be able to make this work. As you look at all this, do you think this is unique to the system you've built? Or do you think, in fact, a lot of other places could model off of this and evolve into a very similar relationship with their community? I think there are other places that can do this. The argument in the Fifth Wave book is that it's time for America's democracy to birth a new kind of university. These would be schools which are research-capable, scholarly-intensive, scalable, diverse, and projectable. That is, they can project outside of the physicality of the university itself. I think that there is a need for these kinds of universities, and there are several schools that are moving in this direction and others that want to. What I'm impressed with is not just what you do at the college level, but you run a significant number of K-12 through institutions, don't you? Right. We run 11 face-to-face, full immersion charter schools with thousands of students, K-12, in low-income neighborhoods. And we also run a digital preparatory academy, which has a high school embedded in it also, which has about 22,000 learners. That's amazing. What has that taught you about what the rest of the country should be doing in terms of K-12, through which in many ways is a much bigger problem for us than college and graduate school? It's a huge problem, and the reason that we did the ASU Preparatory Academy, that's what we call our K-12 schools, was we got sick of people telling us that everyone couldn't graduate from high school and sick of all the silly excuses that they had about this or that. And so what we decided to do was to take lessons that we'd learned and tools that we'd built and teams that we thought that we could construct and design and deploy K-12 through schools that could graduate everyone and move everyone into post-secondary education, either a technical school or a community college or the university or the military. And so we've been able to do this. And the lessons are that you have to set that as a goal. All assets have to move towards that goal. No excuses. The use of technology is very, very important. The use of analytics is very, very important. The measurement of all things is really important. The culture has to be one built around the presumption of success rather than what we've seen in several cultures, the presumption of failure. And so these K-12 schools that we've operated have become powerful learning environments for us also. I'll say one other thing relative to them, and that is 
this gap between the universities and the colleges in the K-12, it's an unnecessary and net negative gap. We should take every asset that we have at the university and make it available to every high school. It doesn't diminish what's available to the university students by making it available to high school students and connecting. And so this is another thing that we're working to do. Do you find in that sense that there are a lot of K through 12 students who actually can do dramatically more serious work than would normally occur in K through 12? We're lowballing in every possible way in high school. We're not individualizing education enough. In our ASU digital prep, we now have 200 college courses embedded into that preparatory academy for high school students to take. And they're doing very, very well in those. We've also found that if you can individualize learning using our adaptive learning platforms, using other kinds of platforms, you can really find the pathway to learning for high school students rather than just trying to force them through these kinds of industrial factories. Those things just aren't going to work, except in neighborhoods of very extreme resources, of which there's very few of those. And so what we do find is that learning potential is much broader than people seem to realize in the structures that we have. Is there a capacity limit to your academy, or could people sign up from all over the country? There's no capacity limit to the ASU Prep Digital. That's a scalable capacity. We have students right now from all over the country, and we have programs expanding in Utah, California, discussions about programs expanding in Georgia and in Illinois and other places. Would you take just a minute and talk about when you wrote The Fifth Wave, The Evolution of American Higher Education? Why did you pick the title The Fifth Wave? It has to do with the fact that there have been four distinct waves of American higher education evolution. The first wave were the colonial colleges, Harvard, Princeton, Columbia, Penn, 10 or so of these existed at the time of the revolution. They were basically extrapolations of the British model, but not organized into universities. They couldn't be built in the South for whatever reason. They all were in the mid-Atlantic and in the Northeast. And so Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina, then right after the revolution got universities going, and then Jefferson got University of Virginia going right in the first quarter of the 19th century. That's the second wave was the beginning of the emergence of the public college, the idea of the public college, which in the 20th century added community colleges and state colleges. The third wave was the product of America's diversification, growth, industrialization, and agricultural The fourth wave was the American idea of merging the German technical school with the British college. Hopkins was the first, Stanford and Chicago were the second and third. They became philanthropically backed prototypes of the American research university. That was the fourth wave. Many, many other schools like Harvard, Michigan, California, ultimately even ASU became fourth wave schools. And the suggestion of the fifth wave is that evolution didn't stop with the emergence of the American research university. America is still evolving and growing and expanding and diversifying and becoming more and more complex. So new models are needed. So the fifth wave is our articulation of the idea for the new model, this adaptable, expandable, innovative, technologically driven, socially projectable new kind of university in ASU is the prototype. I was really impressed at the very height of the COVID pandemic and people closing down, et cetera. Would you just take one minute and explain the scale of IT you used and the fact that you didn't miss a stride? So many places closed down or they had very ineffective online learning, but nobody knew what they were doing. Explain how ASU dealt with the COVID shutdown. When we realized that we couldn't come back 
to complete the spring semester in March, we were able to successfully in 48 hours convert to a new mode that we actually now have as a new modality for the university called ASU Sync, which is shorthand for synchronous, which means Zoom enabled technological projection of the university. We trained in Zoom technology thousands of faculty members who had already been trained in digital technology also. We were able to move 11,000 courses into Zoom mode. And by the end of the semester, we had used about 300 million minutes of Zoom with as many as 90,000 people tied in at one time. In fact, Zoom told us that we were one of the five most significant consumers of their technology on the planet. We did this also for our K-12 charter schools. They didn't miss a day. We had the highest completion rate for the spring semester that we've ever had. We had about 75% of the students that we surveyed said that their learning experience were as good or better. 20% said about the same, and only about 5% said that it was worse. So we felt that that was a successful outcome. We learned a lot for the fall semester. We will now have three modalities that we're operating in. ASU full immersion on campus, if we're able to reassemble. ASU synchronous immersion, which is what we did with Zoom, and then ASU digital immersion, which is online. We have record enrollment for our summer school, 60,000 students in summer school right now in our sync mode and our digital mode. I really give it to our faculty and to our IT team. They were able to completely morph the institution. Now, this is not just a casual thing. You should see the work products that came out of our design school and our music school, the musical performances that our students were able to carry out using Zoom technology. They are astounding. We were very happy that we were able to make this adjustment so quickly. If you think about your own trajectory over the last 18 years, and you then look out, say, 50 years, what will the gestalt of education be like at that point? By then, we will have to move to a mode of learning being a lifetime thing, not a thing early in your life before age 25. You will come in and out of various types of institutions. Some colleges and universities will stay isolated. Everyone will have to be finishing high school, but mastering high school. Everyone will have to become involved in education throughout their life just to keep up with the rate of technological advance, the rate of changes in the economy. It's all going to be within single generations, even fractions of generations. And so I think it's going to be about speed and adaptability, as well as how do we find a way 50 years from now to teach in ways in which we can still capture the totality of history as it's expanding and evolving at orders of magnitude with more complexity than it had in the past. And so we're gonna need more innovations and different models of learning and teaching. And I think it's a hugely important time. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. I want to switch gears and shift to another topic, which will be one of the two or three, if not the biggest questions of the next 50 years, and that is China. And I know you've done a lot of thinking about it, and you've done a lot of work in China. How do you think about China, and what sort of patterns do you try to study or to work off of as you look at China? China obviously is an immensely complicated place that is coming up on its 50th year of an open relationship with the United States from President Nixon's opening of China and its 40th year of evolving into a form of modern economy. And in both cases, the accelerated rate of dynamic change, given where they were before that, is so astounding it's hard to describe. China is a place in which They are approaching things from a different value system than we have, but it is a scaled economy and a scaled culture that I'm hopeful that we can find ways to successfully work with China in a way where we avoid global superpower conflict and that we find some way to work together. What has your experience been like working in China and trying to have a relationship with Chinese higher education? Generally positive. We have a big program in Hainan province with thousands of students working with Hainan University. We operate a program with our business school in Shanghai with the Shanghai National Accounting Institute. We built an American culture center at Sichuan University. Former Ambassador John Huntsman Jr. asked me to see if I could facilitate the building of American culture centers in Chinese universities. We got 13 of them going, including the one that we started. And we had to negotiate with the university's party officials. We had to work our way through the provincial governments. We had to work our way through the national government. I have a lot of interactive experience just getting programs started, launching them, working them, making them successful. And what I find is that they are significant admirers of the American higher education system, of American universities, of American research universities. To be a scholar in China is socially more status-oriented than it is in the United States by a long shot. 
I think that there is a strong and potentially positive set of relationships that can be derived within the academic structure if you can set up a set of rules that are fair. Can Chinese students come to ASU? Yes, we had last year about 3,400 students from China at ASU. We won't have that many this year because of COVID and travel restrictions and complexities and so forth and so on. Do you try to also afford an opportunity for your students to go to China? Yes, we have programs in sustainability, programs in other areas, culture, language. Yes, we do. I wrote a book last year on Trump versus China, focusing on the Xi Jinping and the Chinese communist dictatorship. But I put an entire chapter in there that said it's not China's fault. And I said, you know, you can't blame the Chinese, for example, if the Baltimore school systems have entire buildings where nobody's been able to pass an exam. That is not China's fault. What you're trying to accomplish, the one of the great drivers of the next 20 years is going to be that the current U.S. education system is simply incapable of preparing young people to compete with China, that the quality of work, the seriousness of work that the Chinese are engaged in is just dramatically different than we are currently used to, and that just from a national security standpoint, education is going to become a national security issue. What do you think we need to do so that the next generation of young Americans will be capable of competing with their counterparts in China? In the U.S., for whatever reason, we don't realize the nature of the competition. We're like the wealthy family, three or four generations into the family that can't any longer remember how they got wealthy. In China, they're the scrappers. They're the first generation, the second generation getting wealthy. We don't realize the nature of the competition. The competition is who is the most industrious, who is the most innovative, who is the hardest working, who is the most creative, who can produce the most engineers or the most creative digital artists. And it's all those things. We don't realize that the world's economy led by China has become a true competitor. We're not currently conditioned to have a long-term competitor. Correct. We're delusional to think that somehow such a competitor is a net negative. Such a competitor is a net positive if the rules are fair, because it will stimulate rates of innovation and rates of creativity and rates of expression and rates of economic growth that will benefit everyone. And we don't see it that way. I think that's why what you're doing with the K through 12 students in the ASU system is really important as a potential prototype for a lot of other people to learn from and to see to what extent they could develop similar patterns. If you're a brilliant physicist or mathematician at 13, you ought to learn as much as you can learn. Yes, because you'll probably drop out. I've been to probably 30 or 40 different Chinese universities, maybe more than that, and many, many laboratories and dozens and dozens of companies over there. We decided in 2009 to quit listening to the rhetoric that Nobody in the United States is interested in being an engineer. Well, that's false. Many people are. They're just not interested in the way our engineering schools work. So in 2009, we had 6,000 students in engineering and we had a weed out culture. 68% of the freshmen made it to the end of the freshman year and the rest, 32%, were obliterated along the way. So in the 10 years since then, we've grown engineering from 6,000 students to 25,000 students here at ASU, 17,000 on campus and 8,000 online. We've taken freshman retention from 68% to 90%. And we've done this with huge numbers of new kids coming in from every family background imaginable who want to be engineers. 
Now to do that, we had to eliminate all 11 of our engineering departments and their names, industrial engineering, civil engineering. We created grand challenge engineering programs. We built technology platforms. So the notion was, how does America compete with China relative to the production of young talent as engineers, just as an example? And the answer is, you do not sit back and whine. You must innovate, you must adapt, you must move forward in new ways. And we've been able to do that. So we're producing several times the number of engineering graduates that we were and many times the number of engineering graduates that are women or are minority students than we were because we decided to do that. And that's going to be the only way that we're going to be able to be competitive, not just in engineering. It's going to be by scaling and adapting and diversifying and taking advantage of the totality of our culture, which we haven't been able to do yet. By the way, the census is going to come back 330 to 335 million people. This is a massive country growing to 400, 450 million before your 2070 timeframe. Unless we start building hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new colleges and universities, which we're not going to do, we're going to need a new scalable model. And that's what we're figuring out how to do also. That's great. Listen, thank you for doing this. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, appreciate it. Maybe we'll get some more ideas and people will send us their ideas out there. And now I'll answer your questions. Rhonda Ann from Georgia writes, thank you for all you do to keep conservatives educated. Can you please explain why requiring people to wear masks for the safety of others, especially our seniors, is not against the Constitution? It's my constitutional right seems to be the loudest rallying cry for those who do not want to wear masks. Well, there are provisions in the Constitution for suspending things They usually relate to insurrection or civil war, but you can make an argument if it's a large enough public health crisis that the community at large has the right to impose rules. There was a very famous case many years ago involving a woman called Typhoid Mary who had a very unusual case of typhoid and they couldn't cure it. And wherever she went, she was spreading typhoid, which was killing people given the medicine of her generation. And so ultimately, she was, in fact, locked into a house until she could not leave the house. And they brought her food and they tried to get her things. But they were very strict because wherever she went, she infected people. Now, historically, we don't require random people who are not sick to wear masks. And historically, we don't quarantine the healthy. We quarantine the sick. So I have to say, as a historian, I have been totally confused by how screwed up this is. I don't understand it. I can't understand the numbers. My younger daughter, Jackie Cushman, is a certified financial analyst and used to run a billion-dollar-a-year budget for an AT&T South joint venture. And she said she has never seen data as totally impossible to understand as the data we get about this virus. So whether that is pure incompetence or whether it's deliberate, I don't know. But I am very uncomfortable. And I'm saying this to you from Italy where we went through a 10-week absolute lockdown with only grocery stores, pharmacies, and gas stations open with a $3,200 fine if you were in the street without a legitimate reason, with everything closed. But now, virtually everybody's out on the street again. And the museums are open, the restaurants are open. About 40% of people wear masks, but it's really much more optional than it used to be. And frankly, the idea, for example, that the governor of California just close the zoos is utterly stupid. 
I mean, if anything, you want public spaces for little kids to be able to go out. I mean, these little kids are going crazy, locked up, particularly if you're in a poor neighborhood and you're in a very small apartment and you have no space and no opportunity. And the idiot governor who's very wealthy sitting up there in Sacramento with his nice winery in Napa Valley decides that you can't even go to the zoo. And the idea of a four-year-old having a problem out in the open at the San Diego Zoo or the San Francisco Zoo or the Griffith Park Zoo in Los Angeles, this is just madness. And we seem to be, I think, caught up in an age of panic and fantasy, sort of resembling waves in the Middle Ages when people would go from town to town beating on themselves. They're called the flagellanti. And we now have a whole series of politicians who should sign up for the flagellanti, except they're determined to beat on us. If the governor of California wants to beat on himself, that's fine. But I don't want him to beat on me or other people. And that's where we are. Think of the dumber politicians you're watching as the flagellanti. Look it up. See what it was like in the Middle Ages, and you'll understand exactly what we're living through. It is a totally mindless anti-science experience that has nothing to do with public health and everything to do with the political ideological insanity. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Michael Crow. You can read more about Arizona State University and his book, The Fifth Wave, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your questions at gingrich360.com slash questions. I'll answer them in future episodes. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts, and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Viking. 
Committed to exploring the world in comfort, journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com.